this is a great day for Down the TV Rabbit Hole because, and I know this won't matter to the listeners, but Harry and I have actually taken time on a Sunday to do not one, but two episodes of Down the TV Rabbit Hole. So this is the second one we're doing in one day, and I think we're on a roll, buddy. We're on a roll, and in the words of Milo Hamilton in his uh, Central Illinois accent, double your pleasure. Milo, you know, John Kuhn is the number one listener of this show, and he's a dear friend of mine. I'd put him in a top yeah. top three of my, my closest friends, you know, especially He's in a great Florida. human being. Great human being, but he loves Milo Hamilton. It's the only thing oh. he and I disagree on. Swinging. There's a drive into left center field. That ball is going to be out of here. It's gone. It's 7-15. There's a new home run champion of all time, and it's Henry Aaron. How did that happen? Did, I don't was know. It like he, he was walking down the street and he got hit with a brick that fell from a building and the side effect was he all of a sudden liked Milo Hamilton? The only thing we really disagree on when it comes to sports, for God's sake. So, But, uh-huh. you know, that's all right. Milo was, hey, he's in the Hall of Fame, so someone must like him, for God's sake, right? True. I mean, I'm sure he was a nice guy, but uh, in yeah, this but, world, it's like Hatfields and McCoys. It's Harry yeah. Carey or Milo Hamilton. Well, you know what? Right? Milo, Milo kept pulling that bullshit when he was missing games yeah. when he had leukemia, you know. I'm proud of the fact, uh, the item you mentioned, I never missed a time of that. Uh, not a half inning, not a day of a game I was supposed to do. And much is uh, made over about my style of living. Well, all I know is a lot of guys that don't drink booze and a lot of guys that get 10 hours sleep every day don't show up for work. They got a headache, they got pneumonia, they got uh, leukemia, whatever the hell. I mean, come on. I know. Man. Man, excuse. <laughs> come on. Come up with something better than that. Hey, let's talk sports for just one second before we uh, uh, talk about the two shows that we're going to feature. By the way, I'm Jim Sion in New Orleans. He's Harry Bartosiak in Chicago. And uh, we're going to feature two shows here in a minute. But I just saw it. I guess Chris Collinsworth signed a huge contract to stay on Sunday Night Football. I think he's going to be the highest mm-hmm. paid analyst. What do you think really? of him? What, what's your opinion? I'm a fan. I Me think too. he's been on there a long time. I'm kind of surprised they wanted to extend him a long time, although Al is probably in his last year or maybe second to last year, so they probably want some continuity. Yeah, yeah. I think he's okay. He's pretty good. I mean, he's he's got... I, wouldn't say, I think he, he takes it right up to the line of where he's got like a shtick, but... He, he gives good analysis, and he's got his thing. You know, he's got a brand. You know, it's Chris Collinsworth. Yeah. That's the way he talks. He's got that hair. He's got the long neck and uh, slides he, in there real good. Yeah. No, he does, you're, you're right. He, he does have a long neck. I think Michaels is probably the best play-by-play man out there right now. What do you think? I like Al Michaels a lot. I think he's not quite at the top of his game, but close. He's a iconic American voice. And I like it when he uses the New York pronunciation and forgets to pronounce the H. That was a huge play, you know. um, Really? That's funny because my ex-wife, and she grew up in New York or went to high school in New York, she's the same Uh way. She never says her H's. Wow. I never knew that was a New York thing. (laughs) East Coast, I think, pretty much. All right, so so I would would say Romo is probably one of the best analysts. Do you like him? No, he's a shill. Really? I'll tell you why. Okay. I liked him, but I was what as a Bears fan, he he had the nerve to come on a couple games ago and talk about how his buddy Ryan Pace, who he went to college with, or they're both graduates of Eastern Illinois, and they, uh, they has got the Bears in good shape, or the future's really oh. looking good, and they got a lot of like 
Oh, no. If you're going to go on the air and feed us this bullshit, which we know wow. in Chicago is absolute trash, you've lost any credibility. You get no points. I'm going to listen to your broadcast again. Uh, never. And get the hell off my air. What? Now, see, I love, I think he's great on the air, but I didn't hear him do that about the Bears. And we should explain to, to the listeners, as we're recording this, the Bears have lost their, what, seventh or eighth straight? They they're just got beat by the Cardinals in, in Eddie Dolphins. No, they won last week. They're all happy that they beat the frickin' Lions by two points. But anyway, right. now my blood is boiling and this thing is sticking out of my neck and I'm red as can be. <laughs> If I have a wow. if I have a stroke, you're gonna have, John's gonna have to replace me on the show next week. <laughs> well, I'll tell you, the the crew that I hate is that Monday Night Football crew on ESPN, especially oh. their pregame. Isn't that the worst? It it, it has been bad for so long, just terrible. Yeah. it's like cartoon. It's like, okay, you know, first of all, people are sick of ESPN. I mean, yeah. like that's ESPN's not cool anymore. I admit, I check the app, and they have a lot of sports on, so you have to watch them. But it's the same old shtick, and it's so ESPN-y. And like the, you know, the guy they have to have a three-man booth, and it's not good. I mean, it's just they've taken the Monday Night Football franchise and they've turned it into something very uncool. It's like when they used to they like they took the Mercury Cougar, which was basically a cool sports car. Yeah, my mom like had one. Like a Mustang. Yeah. Super cool with a wooden steering wheel. And yeah. they turned it into something that was like a Ford Taurus. Okay. Yep, yep. That's what they did with the old classic Monday night to the ESPN Monday night. And it's such a shame because on that pregame show, Susie Colbert is adorable. What does it mean to you now when the team is struggling? I want to kiss you. I couldn't care less about the team struggling. I want to kiss you. Thanks, Joe. I'll yeah! Take I think she's great, but everybody really? else. Yeah, oh, I love Susie Colbert. I think she's just, mm. you know, but oh, yeah, and it's all this. They do that segment. Come on, man. And it's like yeah. they're it's like, hey, we're going to we're going to be cool. Look at us. We're and we're going to throw the foot and we're going to mo move around and we're going to. I'm like, this is not fun. This is you guys aren't funny. I mean, there's right. a difference between. And Willard Scott told oh. me this. There's a difference between fun and funny. Willard was fun. He could be funny, yeah. but he was always fun. But ESPN, oh it's God. like, we're fun yeah. and funny and wacky and blah, blah, and they're not. You know what it's like? Willard Scott's perfect example of a contrast for this. You watch an ESPN broadcast and a lot of their shows, it's like all you see, you're watching and you're like, this is all orchestrated by... The consultants behind yes. the scene, the people that run the network, they tell them exactly what to do, how to phrase. They even tell them to talk in choppy tones like this. When you talk, when the ball carrier goes down, like nobody talks like that. They talk different on ESPN. They intonate differently. They do all that trying to be fun, funny. It's not funny. And then a guy like Willard Scott, you can tell it's the opposite. No yep. consultant would ever tell him to act like that unless they said just be yourself. You, you know, know you, you could not be more right in knowing what I do about television. Uh, and I know some of the guys who've worked at ESPN. The show is so overly consulted and so overly produced if you notice, they always they have these like cartoons and it's like this yeah. and that. And I'm like, that's not funny. And it took somebody probably 15 hours to make that 10 second cartoon. Uh, right. Yeah, it's a shame. All right. Well, is I'm this glad one of your is this your show? No, okay, I'm just glad we're show. No, I actually still <laughs> I still have the TV on and I saw Collinsworth. Or I saw, and I said, hey, wait a minute. He just got a big payday. So I just thought I'd throw that out to begin this episode. So good one. You got me fired up now. 
All right, well, uh, again, we pick two shows every time we do a podcast. Two shows, they don't have to be good, bad, whatever. They just have to be shows that somehow affected us over our 50-plus years of television watching. And since we're on a roll, I'm just going to toss it to you, Harry, and I want to know what show you've picked for this broadcast. We're going rocking the Philadelphia way. We're going bopping the Philadelphia way. We're going hopping. No And I forgot the words there because it's bandstand. <laughs> Bandstand. American Bandstand. My mom was an intern for American Bandstand back in the 50s, yes. I swear to God, yeah. And when Dick Clark was still alive, I wanted to try and send him an email and see if he remembered my mom. But, yeah, so this is great. What a great one that I never would have thought of. Oh, right, yeah. So, anyway, sorry for my Barry Manilow impersonation, but anyway, we got that out of the way. Night, great history here, 1952 to 1989. I mean, this is history of rock and roll. Yep. Uh, they encapsulated some of it in a, in a sort of a weird kind of a way. It was in 1952. It, first of all, it was hosted from 1956, not in 1952, but from 1956 to 1989 by Dick Clark. We'll get to that in a little bit. Okay. But it started as a local music show in Philadelphia, 1952. Uh, and what it was, um, basically the history of the show was they would always, they would have like one act come in and lip sync, and then they'd have a bunch of kids dancing and Dick Clark would talk to the teenagers and, and interview them. And I mean, this was just a huge show. Dick, you know, got super famous from it and became a media mogul, super rich. And yep. it inspired all kinds of different shows like Top of the Pops and Soul Train. But before that, uh, it started on local TV in Philadelphia as a sort of an adjunct, if you will, to a radio show hosted by a guy in Philadelphia named Bob Horn. And the early version of the show featured short musical films and occasional live studio guests. What does that sound like to you? Short musical like, films. Basically in- like music videos. So it was like MTV or, I mean. It was a super early precursor to MTV. Now, I don't know that MTV got the idea from him, but that's kind of how it was. Well, th- that was that, that, was that show. show that they did for all those years. To- remember Total Request Live with... Might have been Seacrest. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, my yeah. ex-wife used to watch that all the time, and that's exactly what it was. They really? show a video, and then they'd have an interview, and I think they were right there in Times Square. I think that's where their studios were. Um, I remember that, yeah. Wow, so that's how bands... But what were musical films in well, the early 50s? What was that? There was some people that worked for the show, and I don't... I w- I, I'm sure we couldn't get our hands on it. I didn't have time to Google it, but I don't know. But uh, they were musical films... Presumably, you know, like music videos or some kind of film with the music underneath. And they would sometimes have live studio guests, but there was no dancing or kids or anything like that. So the answer is I don't know what those films look like. The show was local only in Philadelphia. And after a while, I think it was around about 19, I don't know, 54 or something like that, Horn got disenchanted with the format and he came up with the idea to add local kids to dance to the hits and that's where it really started with the incarnation we all remember bandstand a bunch of teenage dancers dancing to the hits of the day and then they would have like one studio guest one band would come in and i don't know if they did it when horn was on but later with dick clark i found out all those acts were lip syncing all of them you know they, they weren't doing anything live uh, and you could kind of tell that almost as a kid, but 
later I figured that out when I was almost in college. I'm like, wait a minute, there's they're not plugged in. They can, you know, there's no right. amplifier. Yeah, a lot of times, yeah. a lot of times, uh, the people that would sing, if it was a singer, they wouldn't even have a band behind them. They just saw the singer with a microphone. Right. Yeah, <laughs> right. Yeah. So here you'll appreciate this part. 1956. You know, Bob Horn's going along with the show, and all of a sudden, bad things happen. Namely. He's arrested for drunken driving. Uh-oh. He's found to be a clog in a prostitution ring. What? <laughs> and he's, quote unquote, brought up on morals charges. And so pretty soon, Mr. Horn is out. Oh. And in comes the young startup, Dick Clark. Okay? Wow. How about that for a flame out? Right place, right so, time, for God's sake. Right. So Dick comes in, they shoot the show at the Starlight Ballroom in Wildwood, New Jersey. Okay. And Dick adds some other features to the show called Rate a Record, which I guess they did for a long time, and I kind of forgot about this, where they would rate records on a scale, and I don't know why, from 35 to 98. Dick would talk to, they'd have local teenagers who would be the dancers and come in, and there was a bunch of kids that got, Teenagers got popular locally in Philadelphia for being regularly on the show, almost like Mouseketeers or something. You know, we don't know about any of them, but I guess it was kind of a thing. And Dick would go out and talk to him in the audience, say, how do you like this song? And, and they would say, oh, I really like this band, and they're so cool, and they're so hip. And they, that's where the phrase, it's got a good beat and you can dance to it, yep. came into the popular parlay cool and that was a feature called raider record here's a few of the acts that made their american television debut albeit lip-syncing on american bandstand all right prince that's pretty big wow jackson five sunny and Cher, aerosmith so that's pretty these they had a ton of people but they made their tv debuts wow um so uh but anyway back to the history of the show in 1957 they had a whole schedule Dick Clark's hosting at this time. It's all jacked up. They had it like 60 minutes, but they would break it up. Like they'd do a 3.30 to 4. Then they had some show. One one of them was called like uh, Do You Trust Your Wife would come on. Then they'd come back and they'd do it from 4 to 4.30. That seemed odd. Yeah. Then in late 1957, they made an ill-advised decision to switch the show to prime time at night on the weekdays. And uh, that was found to be a dumb idea because the kids are busy doing their homework or right. doing other things. At yeah. Night. Right. Finally, they got the time slot right. Yeah. By putting it on on Saturday afternoon. But before that, for a while, they had it as a five days a week plus Saturday show. Can you imagine that? American Bandstand was on every single day for 60, and then they bumped it up to 90 minutes. And Saturday also. Well, I'll tell you now, why. I'll tell you why. Because it was yeah. cheap programming. Extremely cheap. Yeah, right. Get those goddamn teenagers <laughs> in here. Have them dance their ass off. I mean, no, they, you're not going to get no. a goddamn thing. You're on TV. No money. Other than Dick Clark, no one was cashing a check, for God's right. sake. And you know, I'm sure yeah. that I'm sure that the artists that came out and sang their songs I was part of their promotion for the record. So, yeah, yeah no one, no one oh, had yeah. to get paid. 1963 to 1989, it was strictly a Saturday afternoon show. Okay. Okay. 1964, they moved from Philadelphia to L.A. And I guess it was kind of a big blow to some of the record company community and and sort of the music scene in Philadelphia. You can imagine it would be. That was their signature thing. It was already a big show by then. Sure. Um, They went out to L.A. Dick Clark, you know, on his way to media mogulness. They started doing a show in color about 1967, 
and then it continued in its classic form until the 80s. And I know you were watching with me back then. I just remember watching, like, it wasn't appointment television, but there wasn't that much going on for a teenage kid in, the, in, in like, the late morning on a Saturday. You know, you weren't, what, you, what were you doing in the late? Maybe we were working at Kmart later in teenage life, but mostly I was just hanging around the house, messing around, and so you'd have a bandstand on. But it, you could kind of tell... Even in the 80s, you know, it was it was with MTV, and I guess yeah. they got preempted a lot for college football. It was just kind of getting old. And Clark, God bless him, he continued on, and he never looked any older. No, know, he looked great. Very, yeah. 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 And I remember Madonna being on there, like we just talked about Prince and all. They'd have contemporary acts. It was reduced in 1986 to 30 minutes. It was still on Saturday afternoon. And the last episode on ABC was in 1987. The last one with Dick Clark on ABC. And you know who the the musical guest was for that one? I'm going to guess Kiss. No. No. Now, that would have been going out with a bang. We kind of went out with a whimper with Laura Branigan. Oh, I think God. she probably sang Gloria, Gloria. Ugh. Okay. Um, then they get over to, um, they take a hiatus and come back in 1989. Dick Clark is producing it. By this time, he owns the production rights for it. Okay, yeah. so but it's being done under another name, kind of a new bandstand or something, and it's done out of Universal Studios Hollywood outside, and the host is some comedian named David Hirsch. I don't know who the hell that is. Maybe it's no. a friend of David Groh or something. <laughs> but in any event, uh, it doesn't last long, and it peters out, and that's the end. Bandstand's gone after a huge long run, and you got to give them a ton of credit. Oh, um, because, you know, because that, that was a perfect show for the 50s and early 60s. And the fact that they kept it going through the 70s, through disco, and then oh, into the yeah. 80s when, you know, God only knows was, what was happening in music in the 80s, for God's sake. You had Madonna, you had Michael Bolton, you had, a, you know... A, 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 Laura Branigan. Laura Branigan, Paula Abdul. But at the same time, you, yeah. still, you still had a lot of the southern rock bands, like Skinner were still big, and of course Aerosmith and a lot of the heavy metal right. bands. So God bless Dick Clark for keeping it going that long. He covered the territory, man. And, of course, at this, this time when you get into the late 80s, I can't remember the exact date that it started, but Clark starts doing lots of other things. Of course, he did New Year's Rockin' Eve, yep. uh, which he continued all the way up, even regrettably past his stroke in late 2004. Big moments we're waiting for. We're here to roar the they are going to remember tonight forever. For the 40th time, let's count down. 17, 16, 15, 14, 15, 12, 11, 10, 9, 8, 7, 6, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. Happy New Uh, and then passed it on to Ryan Seacrest. Seacrest seemed to be like the pre-anointed successor in many different ways to Dick Clark. And I think he's and he's also taken over Casey Kasem's American yeah. Top 40 show. This guy was like he's like hovering around waiting for these guys to croak, basically to take over. Uh, but then, uh, of course, Ameri uh, TV bloopers and practical jokes with Ed McMahon, which I appeared on, by the way. You did. I saw that you had a great skit. Now, what was that? Did you, you fire some kind of a cap gun off at somebody or something like what? 
it was a great skit, but I can't remember exactly what it was. I was doing a live broadcast. We used to do something called the Backyard Breakfast. It was sponsored by Juicy Lucy's, which was a local hamburger place in Florida. Mm. So I basically go to somebody's house, bring them Juicy Lucy's, and do the weather live from their lanai or their boat or their garage or whatever, you know, their backyard. And it was fun. It was just a lot of fun. It was just kind of Willard Scott type of slice of life thing. But yeah, but I don't I don't know how much of this story I should really tell because <laughs> it, it gets well. All right, I might as well. I'm not married. It yeah. Doesn't matter. All right, so <laughs> so there was this girl that that wrote in and she said, "Oh, I'd like to have you come and blah blah blah." And I watch the broadcast all the time, so I'm like, "Yeah, sure." And I I, I won't say her name. Although you could probably find it because it's on the bloopers and practical jokes, a, a clip. But uh, anyway, I went to her house and it was we were doing it was it was like two days before New Year's Eve. So what we did is we were doing a New Year's Eve party. We were getting ready. So we had the hats and we had the blow horns, you know, woo, and we had the streamers and we got I got silly string. So I gave it to Tina. That was her first name. And I said, here you go, Tina, the silly string. No party is complete without it. So she starts spraying it at the camera. And it was funny, you know. And so we went uh -huh. back and forth. And so, I, and so we came back for another segment. And I said, you know, Tina was so good with the silly string. I, I'm going to go ahead and try it myself. And truth be told, I did this on purpose. I turned the can backwards <laughs> and I sprayed it and it went right into my eye. Now, I didn't think it was, I thought it was going to go on my chest, you know, and, but it, it was a direct <laughs> shot right in the eye. And, of course, we have what's the highlight of just about every New Year's Eve party, the fun streamer, which Tina shot at the camera, and I'm going to attempt to do right now. <laughs> there, you better hang on to that. So anyway, so we used that clip, sent it to Dick Clark, and uh, and the and the young lady and I actually kind of dated a little bit after that, but that's a different story, you know, whatever. Mm, yeah, you took advantage of your position. Uh, well, you know, I think the statute of limitations has run out. Okay. I, I don't, I don't think I crossed any line. <laughs> we were both single. We were both young, for God's sake. But you know how All much right, I got? It, it was like a fifteen-second clip. You know how much Dick yeah. Clark sent me? Um, I, I'm going to guess like twenty-five bucks. A hundred bucks. Hundred bucks. Yeah, All right. you know that's a little something. But well, but later in life, beer for hundred bucks. Later in life, when I sold the footage of Jerry Lewis's last performance to TMZ, I got five hundred dollars. So things are changing. Wow. I think. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. Wow, not many people sell anything to any any kind of uh, uh, television network show, and you've sold two items. So that's impressive. TMZ Let pays the most money. TMZ. Uh, it, they if do. Ever, yeah. If you ever get anything good, call TMZ, and and they pay the most money. What if I called them and told them that you used your position on TV news to date Tina? Well, Can I get know, 500 I'll split it with you. I bet, well, you know, actually, if you use the clip, although I think Dick Clark owns the right to that clip now. I think I Ryan Seacrest owns it now. Oh, that's true. Ryan Seacrest has it. So, well, but that's my Dick Clark story. Let me story. ask you a question. Yeah. That's a good one. How many people you think, I always kind of wondered this, and the same goes now for what I watch on TikTok and, to some extent, Twitter. You know, you watch TV bloopers and practical jokes, and then that kind of morphed into America's Funniest Home Videos. Right. How many of these videos do you think people are doing on purpose? You mentioned how yours was kind of half on purpose. Not yeah. At all. I'm, you weren't manipulating the American no, no, public, no. really. It was, but how many people do you think 
flat out like, okay, here's what we're going to do, and we're going to make this seem like it's an accident. It's going to be really funny, and we're going to send it in to Dick Clark, and we're going to get $100, and they'll take you out to dinner. I, I would think uh, that, you know, back in the in the early days of America's Funniest Videos, it was probably negligible, maybe 4% at the most. Uh-huh. Now, God, I would guess it's probably would, – wouldn't you think it's close to 50%? I would I I wouldn't be surprised. I've yeah. seen some TikTok videos recently where I can tell it's orchestrated. Yeah, you, it's cute and everything, but you can tell, and you you know people are willing to suspend disbelief too. Well, it's like watching wrestling or something like that. Yeah, you know it's fake, but it's still entertaining. Yeah, if, if it gives you a smile or a laugh, for God's sake, you know I, I guess there's there's nothing wrong with that. And even when you stage something like that, you, you're like, well, I know I'm going to fall into the pool, but am I going to fall like crazy? Am I going to fall, you know? Uh, uh, Ass over backwards. So, I mean, who knows? I mean, I, I, they probably know that it's going to come out funny. They just don't know how funny it's going to come out. Right. Very good. It's enter- That's entertainment. That's entertainment. Hey, let me tell you uh, uh, my, my one more Dick Clark story. Uh, the beauty of the yeah. bloopers and practical jokes uh, show that I was on is the fact that you know when a network show is ending, like, for instance, Cheers is ending and the next show is beginning, but they take like 10 seconds of the Cheers credit, and they superimpose like a promo for, in this case, bloopers and practical jokes. And so uh-huh. they say, hey, folks, don't forget, yeah. Friday at 8 o'clock, it's bloopers and practical jokes. And they had a clip, and I mean, it was literally a five-second clip. Jay Leno getting bit in the crotch by a dog, which, by the way, is the <laughs> oldest It's the oldest gig in the book. It's it what you do, and, and Ray Rayner did the same thing, a Chicago guy. He used to put food in his cufflinks or in his cuffs of his pants so Chelveston the duck would come and nip at his heels and chase him around, you know, the studio. Well, Jay Leno, <laughs> and this goes back this goes back 100 years, goes back to vaudeville. You put dog food on your crotch so the dog comes up and bites you in the genitals. <laughs> oh, wow. So... So they I had more power to you. It, yeah. I, I swear to God, that goes back over 100 years. But they showed that clip of Jay Leno. Then they showed my clip getting hit in the eye. So it's like Jay Leno for a second and a half, then me in a, for a second and a half, then full wow. screen Dick Clark saying, join us on Friday. <laughs> oh, my God. Yeah. Wow. And do you have that clip? You know, I don't have that. I don't think. It might be on one of my videotapes somewhere, but I still don't have a VCR, wow. for God's sake. So... Well, you have to share whatever you got on our Jim and Harry Facebook page. Jim and Harry TV, right? Yes. You know what? I will do that, for God's sake. That's a good one for our Facebook page. And thank you for plugging it, because I always forget. You're on top of it, man. All right. Let me finish my stuff here, and I want to hear about Please. your mom's uh, participation. 2002, they came back with a 50th anniversary special for American Bandstand, hosted by Dick Clark. Remember, this is still a couple of years before he had his major stroke. Right. Um, here's some of the guests... Uh, acts and tell me which of these doesn't belong. Okay, okay. okay. Village people, Cher, Kiss, Stevie Wonder, and Dennis Quaid and his band, The Sharks. Oh, Jesus. I didn't even know Dennis Quaid had a band. (laughs) Yeah, it's like, if I have to hear any of these fucking celebrity bands again and people that think they can sing and some people actually give them credit but they suck like dennis quaid and his stupid band and russell crowe and the bacon brothers i mean get the hell out of here i get there's a lot better music for me to listen to than that shit well i'll tell you and i just heard this one and i think they put it on network tv the john belushi recording flip flop and fly from the blues brothers Uh record my god flip flop and fly and i don't know who did it originally 
I think it was one of the old black artists from like the early 50s. And of course, Elvis covered it. A lot of, you know, I think Little Richard covered it. There are so many great versions out there. And Belushi, you know, he just really couldn't yeah. sing. I mean, Dan, no. Dan Aykroyd can play the harmonica. He plays good harmonica. But Belushi wasn't any good. Right, but for the movie, Blues Brothers, it still sounds good to me. That Those musicians are so damn good, and they, they with ever, whatever technology oh, yeah. they had in 1979 or whatever when they recorded it, they got by where Belushi can he They got him singing the right songs. You can get yeah. by with it. You no, know? you're right. The, the movie stuff was definitely his best stuff, and you're exactly right. As a matter of fact, I worked with one of the, uh, the guys from the Blues Brothers band, um, Lou Marini. Who? Lou Marini. Um, Blue Lou Marini. Yeah, I can't remember who, gonna... I, but I was MC for some show he was involved in. Uh, I can't remember the whole, yeah, it was Blue Lou. And, of course, there was Bones Malone, and Paul Schaefer was originally the piano player, and then after that it was, um, oh, what Murphy, was it? Murphy Dunn was in the movie. You know who Murphy Dunn is? He's the son of former Cook County Commissioner George Dunn. Remember Murph and the Magic Tones? That was the band they were playing while Jake was in Joliet. Yeah. Thank you. You're marvelous. You're marvelous. Thank you. I'm Murph, and these are the Magic Tones. We'll be back with the Magic Tones for the Armada Room's two-hour disco swing party after this short break. Till then, don't you go changing. So, Jake, you're out, you're free, you're rehabilitated. What's next? What's happening? What you gonna do? You got the money you owe us, mother... And, you know, Blues Brothers... Donald Bro Duck Dunn. D go yeah, ahead. Duck Dunn was great. And that movie, for God's sake, and we love it because... You know, they mentioned Mount Prospect in the first five minutes of the movie. <laughs> and, you know, we, we know so many of the places. Like, remember old Phil's Beach? where They, they take the cop car out oh, of yeah. the beach. That was Phil's Beach up in, what was yeah. that, McHenry. Um, so we yeah. love all that stuff. But when you look at the movie, eh, it's not. I mean, it's good. And we love it. But is it really? Blasphemer. That, I know. I am. I, I feel bad now. <laughs> <laughs> I will not hear of it. <laughs> I well, demand okay. you edit that out of the show. It's offensive. <laughs> See, I don't. I mean, I love the music and I love, but it, it kind of slow. But you know, we get we get some great Ray Charles. We get. I think it might have been Cab Calloway's last performance on film, for God's sake. Uh, so no, okay. Now I now I feel bad. I, you know what? No, it is a good movie. It is a good movie. It's, it's not like great. a musical. That the music numbers come first. The rest is just filler. Basically. Now, did you see Blues Brothers? What was it? Two thousand. The okay. the reboot. Now you're talking complete. Yeah. <laughs> complete and other horseshit. Okay? Yeah. Well, they bring Don't it. Even soil our program by I... mentioning that movie. <laughs> well, they bring in John Goodman, who I love. I mean, John mm, Goodman is yeah. a. I think he's a great actor. He's funny. He's a, yeah. But my God, I just felt so bad for him. I'm like, dude, you're in a no-win situation here. No win. Yeah. Absolutely awful. The only thing worse would have been if they made Jim Belushi in John Belushi's role. Well, and Jim Belushi used to do gigs with with the band when Aqu I know. yeah, and that wasn't good. Uh, Jim Belushi, that's that's a that's a big sore toe for me. For God's sake, he's one of those guys I just never. Uh, I don't get it. I don't get it. So I don't get it either. But let me finish up by saying that um, there were thoughts, believe it or not. Yeah. You, know, you won't be surprised by this. Dick Clark, till the end, till the bitter end, thought about bringing back American Bandstand with a revival. And I'm sure he was going to insert Ryan Seacrest at that point. But uh, that was stymied, uh, so to speak, by Dick's 
very severe stroke in late 2004, and Dick finally passed away. Uh, he lived a while longer. April of 2012, he finally passed away at 82. So that's too bad. But he, you know, he had a great run. Oh, yeah. Very wealthy man, huge media mogul, and American bandstand. Even though it was sort of milk toast. It was a pioneering show. Well, see, we yeah. were we remembered as being milk toast, but you're exactly right. Back in its day, yeah. I mean, it was probably uh-huh. the hippest show. I mean, and then, then there were so many of the copycats, like Shindig, and I think it, 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 I'm going to try try to find the clip, but I think that Dick Clark featured the first interracial couple that ever danced together on network television. I wouldn't be surprised. Yeah. And I, so, I, I remember cool. I remember I remember it was like a stumbling block. They said, oh, should we do this? And he said, well, what's the, what's the big deal, for God's sake? This was in the 60s, I think. So they did it yeah. and they got like maybe one or two letters. And Dick said, see, I told you it wasn't a big deal. They're like, oh, God, we were so worried. He's like, come on. You know, so Dick was. Yeah, no, he was a visionary. Good for uh, him. Yeah, a visionary and, uh, you know, very successful and an icon, for God's sake. I, I'd love to know how much money that guy had in the bank when he passed away. I would love it. Yeah, that would be great to know. And uh, how, how Ryan Seacrest weaseled his way in to being Dick's successor. I can think of a lot of better people to do that like you. Well, anyway, it's too late. No, the great story is that Dick was in the hospital and he had just come out of intensive care and woke up and he was in his hospital bed and the phone rang and Ryan was like, Dick, I heard you have a stroke. I'm ready to go. I'm right here. (laughs) (laughs) That's a real story. No, I made that up. (laughs) I thought you were going to tell me he woke up and there was a pillow over his face being held down. (laughs) That would be even better. No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) Wait a minute. Uh, no, anyway, but uh, you know, I guess Ryan Seacrest is okay. I'm sure he he, he earned his he earned his. Oh keep, yeah, but, uh, no, I I mean I'm not a Ryan Dick? Seacrest fan, but he works hard and he, he's a good broadcaster. I I think he's he, yeah. you know I, I I wouldn't he's no Dick Clark, but you know, well I, that's like saying Dick Jim Clark Bo- was just hovering around waiting for Bob Horn to get busted in the prostitution ring. So what's the difference? I oh, guess, he, right? he probably framed him. He probably paid for the hooker and said, "Hey, yeah. show up, man. Go go into the studio right now." <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> So what happened with your mom? She was a producer on the show? She was an intern, and I, I wish I had better stories. I, I, she used to tell me this. Uh, she, her two stories were she dated uh, uh, she dated Walter Jacobson, who was a Chicago anchorman for many years. Uh-huh. Uh, they went to the same college, Grinnell College in Iowa. So she dated Walter Jacobson, and she was an intern on American Bandstand. Unfortunately, she died when I was 14, so I never got to uh-huh. really hear the full story. But there you go. She worked mm-hmm. for Dick Clark. Said it was a lot of fun, but, you know, interns. She didn't work for them. She didn't get paid, for God's sake. But she did it, so. Yeah. All right, American Bandstand. that's it. A classic show. American Bandstand. I can't believe you pulled that one out, man, because I never would have thought of that. Brilliant. That's great. Now, when we were doing our first show, we took a break, and what did you say? You were going to take a break, and you were going to do something that they used to do on the old match game. Oh, yes. I was going to... Repair to the banquet room, have right. some vino, some souffle, and smoke a cigarette. Well, that works perfectly for my show because it was on from 1974 to 1984. Everybody remembers it. If you're up at 3 in the morning, you can turn on TV and you're going to see an infomercial for it. I'm talking about the Dean Martin Celebrity Roast. Uh, <laughs> 
Love it. And lo I love it. And you get it. Uh, Sammy, 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 Snoopy. You know, I really think I picked this just so I can include a gazillion clips from the roast that, you know, stuff that we have, yeah. we've seen a hundred times and it's still pretty funny to us. And of course, right there, you were doing a Foster Brooks, right? <laughs> yeah, right. Ladies and gentlemen, ladies and gentlemen, folks. <laughs> this man, D-Mart, D-Mart, D-Martin, has a, without a doubt, the warmest heart in show business. And you would, too, if you drank Sterno. <laughs> On behalf of the citizen, gentlemen, the citizen, Half of the folks of Las Vegas, I'm here to give our thanks to this superstar, Sandy Duncan Jr. Sandy Duncan. Oh. Where would Las Vegas be without you, Slammy? Slummy? Sammy? Oh, my God. Yeah, he was classic. And then he had Rickles. And look at Dean. He's drunk over in the corner again. <laughs> yeah. Go ahead and smile, Dean. It's okay. Just don't get in the oh. car afterwards. No, I mean, you think about it. And I'll go through some of the uh, the performers here in just a minute. But, you know, it was such a great, a, a great representation of the 1970s and 80s of show business and Vegas. And, and granted, when you look back on it now, and here's the thing that's amazing. When you buy the DVDs, do you know now that they come with a disclaimer? No. What, what do they say? What does it say? I wish I would have kept it. I found it on one website, and I should have saved it. But it basically, and it's not that well written, but it's like two paragraphs. And they say, keep in mind, folks, that this was the 70s and early 80s. It was a different time when certain... Certain slang terms were a little more mainstream. And the cigarettes and the drinks are real. But again, remember, it's Vegas in the 1970s. And it literally, because, you know, I mean, some of those jokes aren't politically correct anymore, which, you know. Hell no. No. <laughs> I mean, they're funny, but for some reason, yeah. people are getting offended. I mean, but they actually have the disclaimer on there saying, hey, come on. Remember, this was the 70s and early 80s. Everyone's having fun. Uh, no one's poking fun at anybody. There's no malice intended here. But there is an actual disclaimer on the back of the DVD. Well, actually... I did a bad impression of Don Rickles, but basically those shows were his whole act. It was basically yeah. to insult anything and everything about anybody's nationality, heritage, habits, yep. uh, sexual orientation. I mean, you name it. It is the checklist for what you can't say or get away with nowadays. And back then it was hilarious. Yep. And, you know, uh, if I watch it now, I would still laugh my ass off. I mean, because the point of it, was supposed to be sort of self-contained where they were roasting the purse, the, the celebrity, like with Jimmy Stewart or Bob Hope or whoever they had. So it was all directed at that person, not at groups in particular. Now, I suppose we can get super, super cancel culture-ish and say, yeah, but it had a negative impact on the way different groups feel about themselves. Okay, okay, I get it, I get it. Yeah. But come on. This was seven, like I said, they were drinking and smoking and... And oh, ripping on each other, and they were all friends, hilarious. and it, they were done at the um, the MGM Grand in Vegas. So they're in Vegas, hanging out with their friends. 
Come on. I oh mean, my the, God, yeah. Yeah, the, again, there was no And how malice. great is it that were, they were really drunk, too, right? Well, some like, of them uh, were. I mean, Dean, you know, De- uh, they used to say, oh, no, Dean doesn't drink that much. No, as he got older, he's... Bullshit. Yeah, no, <laughs> you're right. He, he, he drank pretty good. <laughs> he drank pretty good. All right, so... And they would have, they would have all the classic B-listers come out, too, like Charlie Callis was on there, right? Bing, zip, pow, Am I misremembering that? You're exact. No, I'm sure you're right. But the problem is when you go to IMBD, and you know what? I'll get to that in one second. Let me go chronologically and tell you how the roasts became, you know, how, how they became a thing. Dean Martin, of course, had his variety show produced by Greg Garrison, who was his partner in the show. And a lot of this information that I'm going to talk about right now comes from Lee Hale who was the music director, basically the music director, for the Dean Martin Variety Show for all the years it was on in the 60s through 74. Well, And he was the brother of the skipper from Gilligan's Island. No, he wasn't. The, he had nothing to do with no. Alan Hale Jr. Oh. But he was, he was a great piano player, and he was the guy that basically arranged all Dean's numbers. And he would actually, he was Dean's stand-in when they would do the rehearsals during the week. Uh, and he would actually wear a card on, on his body, a big card that said Dean Martin. So when they would do the rehearsal, like, for instance, let's say the guest was Ruth Buzzy. Ruth Buzzy would come on, and Lee Hale would read all of Dean's lines with this big card. Yeah. I swear to God. Yeah, yeah. And he wrote two. Well, why wasn't Dean, why wasn't he doing it? Well, because Dean, Dean, no, he never came to rehearsals. He showed up the day of the taping. Oh. They would do a walkthrough very quickly. Then he would go back in his dressing room, and they would do the camera blocking. And with him, he just came out and did it. And if it worked, great. If not, we'll try to roll tape again. But, you know, he wanted to do everything in one take and get it back out to the golf course, for God's sake. Okay. And he had cue cards, though, right? Oh, he yeah. No, yeah. This- <laughs> You're exact. No, he read everything off the cards. <laughs> so, anyway, so Dean had the variety show. But then in 1973... He got divorced from his wife, Jeannie, and that was a big turning point for the show because you remember a lot of his humor revolved around the gold diggers and he was always chasing women. But the fact is that the public was like, oh, no, that's just an act. You know, he Uh goes home to Jeannie and the family. But once he got divorced, there was a big, big, big I don't want to say an uprising, but a lot of people wrote in, especially from the Midwest. Hey, wait a minute. This guy really is a scumbag. Exactly. Yeah. So they actually, when he found out or when he announced he was divorcing Jeannie, Greg Garrison and Dean go back into the dressing room and they get done with the show. And Greg Garrison says, listen, crew, he says, we're going to pay overtime. Can you stick around for another couple hours? Like, okay, what? So what happened then is Dean came out in his tuxedo. And they had to rewrite all of the jokes that they had in the can revolving around Jeannie and girls because there were a lot of jokes that he told that would would be funny, but now he was divorced, so he couldn't tell those jokes anymore. Oh, wow. So he stuck around, and, and, and to his credit, Dean sat there. I think it took like four or five hours, and you know, so the writers are scrambling. They're like, what do we got to cut? Okay, we'll rewrite, and then we'll go ahead and insert this. 1973, Dean Martin show, uh, the variety show, was still popular, but they used to do the roasts, and you might remember this, as like a little segment in the show, like a 15-minute segment. No, I didn't know that. Is that how they started it? Yep, yep. The last couple of years of the variety show, they would do a little roast. It, it, it would be the man of the hour. They wouldn't call it a roast, I don't think. Starring Dean Kelly, Ted Knight, 
Audrey Meadows, Foster Brooks, Senator Birch Bayh, Jack Carter, Rocky Graziano, Art Linkletter, Donald O'Connor, Burt Parks, and the man of the week, Monty Hall. I remember that, yeah, man of the hour. But they'd have everybody up. This is on his variety show, only 15 minutes, but they'd have all those people? Well, it started that way. It would be, maybe it wasn't quite as extreme. Maybe they'd only have six or seven performers, where in Vegas they would have a dozen. So what happened was they did that. That proved to be popular. The variety show kind of lost its luster, as variety shows, you know, in 74 were kind of going out of vogue. Uh, So anyway, so they said, listen, Let's just do the roast. We'll do it at the MGM Grand where Dino had his, you know, his uh, his contract. He appeared there six weeks a year, eight weeks a year, whatever. So that's when the variety show morphed into the roast, which became specials then from uh, 74 to 84. They did 54 episodes. And they were all, what, like 90 minutes or were they about an hour? I, I, You know what? I'll tell you the truth. I don't know. I think they went back and forth. If they had somebody who was really a big deal, I think they would do a longer roast. And let me give you a list. Actually, are you ready for a quiz? You want a quiz? I would love to quiz. All right. Who do you think was the first person to be roasted on the official quote-unquote Dean Martin celebrity roast? You, okay. Um, I'm going to say Bob Hope. You're exactly right. Very good. A plus. Mm-hmm. Bob Hope was number one. All right. Let me. right. I'm just going to go ahead. There, there were a couple of people that were roasted twice. Uh, Jack Klugman, Red Fox, Joe Namath, and Michael Landon. Uh, they were roasted twice, but I'm going to go ahead and read you a that's list. That's not right a now. couple. That's four. That's four. Okay. Sorry, sorry. to be. Okay. No, you're right. Yeah. Okay. All right. I'm going to throw out some names and you tell me that whether they were roasted or not by Dean Martin. William. All right. I'm ready. William Conrad. Not. Yes. Cannon. He was. <laughs> Cannon. A bill. What was that? Who produced that show? Mark. Quinn Martin. Uh, Quinn Martin production. A Quinn Martin production. How about Spiro Agnew? Was he roasted or not? I'm going to say yes, because that doesn't seem right. No, he wasn't. <laughs> he wasn't. No, that wouldn't be right. All right. How about Hubert Humphrey? Yes, he was. You're exactly right. Ronald Reagan. Yes, he was. I saw that. That was a good one. Yeah, it was a good one. How about Bob Euchre? No. Joe Gargiola. Yes, Joe Garage Door Opener. Was boy, you're there. nailing this. Uh, John Ritter. <laughs> no. Very good. Suzanne Summers. Yes, she was. What? She was one of the last ones. Are you looking over my shoulder, for God's sake? <laughs> no, I'm just relying on my, my impeccable memory of meaningless things. Boy, oh boy, I tell you. It's too bad this isn't a category on Jeopardy. You'd be like <laughs> Ken Jennings, for God's sake. All right. <laughs> He never got a dinner, but did he get a roast? Red buttons. I'm going to guess yes. That seems right up the show's alley. No, he didn't. Poor guy. Oh, he never got a roast. All right. How about two of our favorites? Jack Carter. <laughs> no, no. He You're... would have been a roaster, though. Uh, yeah, he may have appeared, but no, he was never roasted. And Norm Crosby. Norm Crosby. Uh, I would say no, but a classic roaster. You're exactly right. Very good. I think you batted 90% on that. <laughs> Wonderful. All right. Now, Very good. the two right. guys that appeared the most on the roast, one of them was, they, they, both of them appeared 24 times. So they had 54 episodes. Mm-hmm. So they were on 24 times. The two guys who appeared the most were, mm-hmm. 
I'm going to get... Jim. I, was Jim. No, no, it wasn't Foster Brown. Can, can, can I get... Yes. <laughs> <laughs> they were Nipsey Russell. Oh. And I bet you can guess the second one. I bet mm. you can. Oh, you mean it's not Foster Brooks? I was trying no. to force that he, out. He's, of you. he's okay. a guy who's still around, but he would be perfect on the roast, especially if maybe they were roasting a Jimmy Stewart or a Jack Benny, as they did. Oh my God! No, I'm not going to be able. To, I'm going to yes. kick myself. I'm already just pre-kicking myself right now. Well, Fred Travelina. Um, no, Jesus! Uh, <laughs> he, he's the gold version of Fred Travelina. Oh, Rich Little, of course. Yep, yep. <laughs> I am not a crook. Yeah, right. yeah, that's true. By he, the way, that, Rich Little, yeah. overrated. There, I said it. Uh, you know, I'm going to disagree with you only because I saw his performance on Impressionist Week on Letterman about 10 years ago. Uh-huh. Okay. And at that point, he was well into his 70s, maybe 80s. And I thought he nailed it. Now, Andy Rooney of 60 Minutes touches all generations, the past, the present, and hopefully the future. And he's always asking questions. A little annoying at times, but always asking questions. Here's a few things that bother me. Why do they sterilize needles for lethal injection? Why did kamikaze pilots wear helmets? I don't understand that at all. I saw him recently. He still seems like he's with it. It was weird. It was on like this. Conser- it was on YouTube. It was on a conservative, like a super conservative talk show where they, you know, we're not going to get into politics on this, but this right. was way, way, way right where they're basically, you know. Like, everything's bad unless you believe in everything. And right. he was on there and ripping Joe Biden. But I have to say, um, the impression was funny. And the uh, the other impressions he was doing was right on, just like from the old days. And he looked pretty good. I'm like, he must be about 85 years old. And so, you know, so, and it was, he was kind of funny in the way he delivered and the way he talked. I didn't agree with all the political stuff he was saying, but it, it was pretty good. Uh, but remembering back in the days, some of the impressions, I think, were not as good as I remembered when I was a kid. I'm a little bit of a harder grader right now. No, You, you know what? I don't disagree with you there, and that is a good yeah. point. Because when you go back now and you're watching those impressions, and granted, you know, how many impressionists were there at that point? There was Little. There was Fred Travelina, Frank Gorshin really John wasn't Biner. doing impre- John Biner. Yeah. And uh, Vaughn Meter, yeah. of course, had already, you know, Vaughn Meter was almost homeless at that point. Um, <laughs> but, yeah, some of them, when you look back. Copycats. His, his Jimmy Stewart was good. And his Benny oh, and Burns were pretty good. Yeah. But some of the other ones, you're right. They were a little bit weak. Little his weak. Nixon. He was famous for his <laughs> yeah, Nixon. Nixon. Right? <laughs> Did I tell you I worked with an impressionist that was doing a Nixon in the 1990s, the late 1990s? No. Oh, he, well, he was an amateur. This He was like, he put together this talent showcase, uh, and he hi, he hired bands to come and play, and he got a bunch of agents from all across Florida to come. But, oh, wow. But he basically wanted to show everybody, he was a retired cop, he wanted to show everybody that he was a comedian and a ventriloquist <laughs> and an impressionist, and he was doing a Nixon in 1998, and it was it was shockingly what? bad. 
Oh my God! What was he holding, like uh, Charlie McCarthy, and doing a Nixon impersonation, or did he have a Waylon Flowers and Madam he, gummy? He had an almost replica of Charlie McCarthy sitting on a stool. Oh. He didn't even put it on his knee. It was like, yeah, yeah, no, he was the worst. He had his jokes taped to the back of the dummy's head. Oh, this is good. I love. It. So he would like do his. He, he was reading the whole thing off the back of the dummy's head. See, that is so bad that it's good. That is good, bad oh. stuff. You know, when you cross over that territory and this is, you just relish something like that. You you stumbled across one of the more super entertaining bad bits ever right there. Oh, and he was sweating profusely. He had that horrible flush. <laughs> it keeps getting better. He's wearing a tuxedo. Oh, I felt bad for the guy. I re- do you have any clips of him? No, I wish I did. But I do remember that all the agents, and there were about a dozen of them in the audience, they were all drinking very heavily. Very heavily. <laughs> oh, but, but I will say this. When our band played, they loved us because we were actually you know pretty good players. So we come out there and we like, you know, we're playing like when the Saints go marching in or Bill Bailey and we're coming, they're like, thank God. We they were just... primed up for anything passable. They were going to, you guys were like music gods at that point. Yeah, yeah. no, they, they loved us. It was a great ovation <laughs> when we got done. All right, oh, the, the Dean Martin Rose. Uh, Michael Landon was the last one that they did, and there's a great story about the last roast, and they actually had to, to postpone them for about two years because the MGM, if you remember, it burned down. Yeah, that was a huge fire, the MGM Grand. I do remember yeah. that. Some people died in that one. I think it was bad. Yeah, I think you're right. So once they rebuilt, they did the last of the roasts, and supposedly Dean Martin shows up, and they're rolling tape, and they're getting ready to go, yeah. and they're all getting ready to walk out, and Dean Martin turns to Lee Hale or whoever and says, uh, wait a minute, uh, who are we roasting tonight? So says, well, Michael Landon. Oh, Michael, I like him. He's a good boy. <laughs> so he didn't even know who they were roasting. Uh, he didn't even know. Oh, wow. Uh, well, hey, sometimes you can uh, over-prepare for that kind of thing. But, you know, that, that probably was, except that those guys had to have their jokes ready to go, but they were basically the same jokes, yeah. just recrafted for everybody. Yeah, a lot of the guys, and of course, they were in Vegas. So whoever was in Vegas would appear on the roast, and a lot of the guys would just do stuff from their act or have special material written for them by Dean Martin's writers, and they just write them on the card. But the thing about the, the roast, and Lee Hale writes about this in his book, especially as they got to the mid and late 70s, they weren't phoning it in, but they weren't taking it maybe as seriously as they should have. Yeah, it was too loosey-goosey, like uh, going through the motions kind of thing, because like you said, it was it was basically the same shtick yeah. every week. And what would they would do is they would roll tape on everybody, and then once they got done, they'd go to the editing room and... And they had the, what they did is they would use cutaways, as we call in the business, of like, you know, they would tell a joke and then you'd cut away to Milton Burrow laughing. Well, he wasn't laughing at that joke. That was B roll that they got, you know, from earlier in the evening or late. <laughs> and sometimes they would even use B roll from other roasts. So they're like, well, oh, yeah. it didn't matter, you know, and they would actually go. And when they had, they, let's say they had two hours worth of material. Lee Hale would go, and there would be a joke, and he would go, medium, and he'd write it, you know, in the rundown, and then a good joke, oh, big one, and then another one, ah, little laugh, and then another one, he'd say, oh, just a smile, so then they would edit in either the the cutaways, or they would 
put in the laugh track. So if it was a really good joke, they'd sweeten it with a lot of laughter. If it was kind of an okay joke, they'd have a little bit. So that's what we, they would do. Is they would say, okay, that was a good joke. Let's get a cutaway of Milton Berle, like, you know, pounding his knee or falling down, you know. So it was, and when you watch it now, the editing, you can tell it's a little sloppy. Let me ask you, yeah. that's a great point about the editing. What do you think, how do you think it worked? Like, do you think, did they have a studio audience and was in some kind of a Vegas ballroom and you went in there and they, they were actually sitting there for like two hours or something? Or, were they, or is it like a TV show where it, they kept stopping and starting and people and the people in the audience, I, I just pictured that the people in the audience must be like sitting around tables drinking themselves. But how, how, do, you, the, the, how do you think it worked as far as the production of it? Well, it was at the MGM Grand where Dino was performing anyway. So I think what they would do is they would just put on the marquee, Dean Martin roast, 8 o'clock, uh, supper show at midnight or whatever, and then he'd actually go out and sing. So it was just kind of like a bonus thing. If you were in Vegas, you happened to be in Vegas on that Friday, you could go to this show, and like I say, Lee Hale in his book says, we just taped everything. We, we just go ahead. Everyone would be sitting up there. You know, there'd be 12 comedians. And Dean would just read the, the intro, and so-and-so would come up, and they'd record, 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 record. And then when they got done, they just went into the editing room and said, okay, let's take the best of it, and let's make a one-hour show. Interesting. Yeah. Well, what a good show it was. I mean, you know, okay, politically correct, no. But, oh, uh, you know what, though? No, it was let's a different time. And like I say, uh, there was never any ill intent. But the greatest roast no. is one that you never saw. Why? Because they roasted Muhammad Ali, and he came up, and everyone did their thing, and Muhammad Ali got up at the end, and he says, I got to tell you something, Dean, this show is not funny. These jokes are terrible. And then he went oh down, and he, like, roasted every comedian and basically said, you stunk, you stunk, that's not funny, that joke's 30 years old. And at first, people were a little uneasy, and then they realized, well, he's actually kind of telling the truth. Boy, that's pretty funny. But the producers, and I think it was Greg Garrison, they were a little, they're like, wow, this is hitting a little too close to home. Because, yeah, Milton Berle's jokes are 30 years old. And uh, That was part of the funny part of it. They're not supposed to be like topical it's supposed to be kind of bad almost yeah. crossing over into that good bad category that we were talking about but greg garrison said no you know what we better cut a lot of muhammad stuff because it's it's cutting a little too close to the bone for lack of a better uh, uh, phrase so so much of that you only get to see like ali doing about a minute minute and a half and they say he did 15 minutes and it was hilarious and spot on no kidding. So they did show the show. They just didn't show all of the champ. Yeah, yeah. They they cut a lot of Ali's stuff. Now, do you watch the roasts that are on Comedy Central now? I guess Jeff Ross. No, I don't like no, them. Me neither. And I think it's because I liked the Dean Martin one so much. It's kind of like a reboot to me. You know how much I hate reboots. Right. I'm, I'm, I am my the default position is this is horrible and evil. I'm not even going to think about watching it. Then I find out sometimes it's funny, but you know I don't care. Now, did I tell you I sold a roast or I sold a joke for the Pamela Anderson roast? Yeah, you did. Yeah. Yeah. A guy, a guy never, How did that go again? It's a terrible joke. It, it's it's so filthy, I'm even afraid to say it. <laughs> all right. That's, well, tell us all. All right. It, well, it's, it's a variation on a joke they used on The Odd Couple. Do you remember? Here, I'll tell it this way. It was when, when Howard Cosell was with Jack Klugman, and Jack Klugman was filling in for, like, Dandy Don for a preseason game. 
and Jack Klugman shows up with all these jokes. Do you remember this episode? No. Okay. Well, the joke was... Oh, yeah, I think I do, but refresh Okay. Me. Well, he shows up with these jokes, and then he decides not to use them, but then Howard Cosell is mean to Jack Klugman, so Tony Randall goes into the wastebasket and pulls out the jokes and starts reading them to Howard Cosell. Oh, yeah. Okay, I, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and <laughs> and one of the jokes was, and again, this is it probably goes back to 100 years, but the variation that they used was, Hey, Howard, Evil Knievel just called. He wants to jump your mouth. Yeah. <laughs> okay. I think I remember yeah. your joke now. And I changed wanna... Evil Knievel to Robbie Knievel, and it was Pamela Anderson, so I had them jumping her you-know-what. Uh, the, mm-hmm. So, yeah. Yeah. I mean, Insert it, yeah. body part here. <laughs> exactly. Okay. Horrible joke, but I'm told that they used it, and I never got paid. The, the comedian that I sold it to, he said, hey, if I sell it, I'll give you half. And I think it was 100 bucks or 200 bucks, whatever it was. And he emails me. He says, hey, they used your joke. And I'm like, really? Wasn't that the Jeffrey guy who was so um, uh, ubiquitous on that show? Is on there all the time? He, yeah. What was his name? Jeffrey Ross. Yeah, he's the guy that I think told the yeah. joke. And the comedian that I had worked with sold it to Jeffrey. So I don't oh, know. Okay. I don't know. But Ross might not know that. Yeah. No, okay. no, no, no. I'm sure he didn't. But yeah, I can't. I don't like the the new roasts either. I just don't find them. They're mean and they're really mean spirited. I think. Yeah, that's what I did notice when I watched a couple that that Ross guy and there's some woman they have on there that's just as mean as hell. Oh yeah. I don't find that as funny because you can tell these people probably don't like each other and they don't even know each other and it's not like those old Hollywood people like on the Dean Martin roast. You know, you knew that was good-natured jabbing that they would go out and drink and smoke with yep. each other and lisa lampanelli is the girl you're thinking about yeah. she's so yeah, i mean I she like is yeah she's so mean and and so foul-mouthed for god's sake i just i don't like it all right well we like the old ones we like the classics and uh, for god's sake you know dean martin who's a better roast master a better uh, i guess he was the roast master he was the host whatever you know you got dean martin is jeff ross a dean martin i don't think so negatory all right now let's see uh, uh would you like to end this episode with a little impression would uh, you like to do a uh, i'd like to say thank you for listening to uh, down the tv rabbit hole excuse me uh, have you ever been in schenectady <laughs> no i never was in schenectady Neither was I. It must have been a couple other guys. <laughs> but I still have a feeling I've seen your face someplace else. No, it's always been right here. Right on the top of my neck. Maybe you've seen me on television. Oh, oh no, I've never been on television. <laughs> See, is, is it all, oh, all right? If I, if, if, if I join you, I... I just dropped in for a little drink to settle my nerves before I go to work. Work. What, what, what sort of work do you do? I'm an airline pilot. Boy, not many corrections at all in this one. Uh, Rich Little, still alive, 83 years old. Another show that was a knockoff of American Bandstand was Hullabaloo. Flip Flop and Fly was originally done by Big Joe Turner. Harry, you should have known that one. In TRL, 
on MTV was toasted by a gazillion people, probably most famous was Carson Daly. And just since we got a couple of seconds, Foster Brooks, he died in 2001. He was 89 years old. Supposedly, according to what I've read, he had a really good life. Everyone loved him, but he wasn't a drunk at all. As a matter of fact, he stopped drinking in 1964 as a buddy of him bet him 10 bucks. And he just won the bet and just never drank again. So there you go. Kind of interesting about Foster Brooks. Funny, funny, funny guy. That's the podcast. Thanks for listening. So long now.